and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you a bit about myself and what I'm up to. And hopefully you'll be interested in some of the stuff I'm about to share. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company that we call Strong Skills. See, at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. So if you work in corporate America, things like teamwork, leadership, communication are deemed soft skills. And if you're from the sports world, you know that when you call something soft, it tends to devalue what that person is or what that thing is. And so I really want to try to get away from calling these skills soft. We need to value these skills as strong. And one of the skills that we teach is called shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, and I know you're going to love the book. So many of our guests on the podcast intentionally or sometimes unintentionally shift their mind. So you can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the book via Audible. I know a lot of you like to get information through your ears via the podcast. I'm telling you, the book on Audible will also resonate with you and you get my voice. So if you don't like my voice, maybe get the hard copy and, and read it. But if you enjoy listening to me, then obviously go over to Audible and you'll get more Brian Levinson in your ears. I love talking to the third person. Not really, but that time I did. So thanks to all of you who have already purchased and I've been overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching from myself. We have head coaches in sports. We have CEOs of businesses. We have VPs in healthcare. We have people that work in government contracting. We have COOs in real estate. If you're somebody in the corporate world, perhaps you have a sports background or perhaps you don't. Either way, it's good. But if you're competitive, if you're curious, if you're open-minded, if you're driven, ambitious, and desirous of growing, learning, and figuring out how you can be 
your best self, and you're interested in connecting with other people in our community, I'd love to hear from you. So the Accelerator program launches in January, and it's currently filling up, and it involves one-on-one coaching, it involves a monthly Zoom call, and an annual retreat. If you're interested in learning more, feel free to reach out. My email is brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. And thanks to all of you who have already done so. Let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest, Joanna Burnaby McNamee is the head coach at Boston College University, and she's had quite a journey. She's coached at Furman. She's coached at University of Maryland. She was the head coach at University of Albany before landing in in Boston and coaching Boston College. She also took a sabbatical to help raise her children, and she's going to talk about what it was like to be away from the game and what it's been like to come back to the game and still be a mom. So Coach Mack wears many hats, but she is a head coach and you can hear her fire in her belly when she is chatting with me. You can hear her intensity, but you can also hear her deep desire to develop people, to develop teams. And she's really building something special at Boston College. And she's going to talk about what she's trying to build and her vision for the program that she is building currently. So I know you're going to love Coach Mack. And without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Coach Joanna Burnaby McNamee. Coach, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Coach Brenda Freeze recommended that we chat. So here we are. When when Coach Freeze recommends that you chat with somebody, you just say, all right, sounds good. Let's do it. And then I, I did some research on your background and I said, yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. So I'm excited to chat with you. Uh, learn more about your journey. But as it relates to your journey, I feel like most of the stuff that I was able to find on the internet was sort of college and beyond. So I'm actually curious to go a little pre-college and get a sense of what life was like for you as a kid and your upbringing. Uh, So let's start there and let's see where it takes us. Hi, sounds good. And Brian, thanks for having me. Brenda Freeze is definitely a huge part of who I am and how I've had success in this profession. So I owe her a great deal. When did you and her connect? Boy, we connected. I was an assistant coach at Eastern Kentucky University, and she was the head coach at Ball State. And I was trying to get them on our schedule because I was in, I like did scheduling on, on top of being the recruiting coordinator. So we would see each other on the road recruiting. And when we would, I'd always be like, hey, why don't you schedule us? Because I wanted to play your team because they were a little bit closer and not a bad drive. And we were recruiting at Indiana at the time. So and we just started to kind of build a friendship through that. And she is the master of keeping in touch with people and really keeping the bridge connected with her uh, connection. So she continued to stay in touch with me, which I was always honored to, you know, consider her a friend in the profession. And then once she had an opening, it was kind of history from there, but that's how we first met. What does she do to stay connected to people? She just like checks in on you every now and again, which in any profession or when you're younger or whatever, and we were really close the same age and she was fun to hang out with because I could make her laugh. So I enjoyed like kind of being sarcastic with her, making her laugh. But when someone just checks in on you for no reason, that makes you feel pretty awesome. And so she's really good at just staying connected and just checking in for no reason. Like, I don't know how she does it or, or, but she's even continued. 
when I got out of coaching and was a stay-at-home mom, she would check in on me even then, which I thought was amazing. Just a text, hey, how you doing? Exactly. Uh, or phone call? or is Sometimes it, is a it... quick phone call, sometimes a quick text, hey, just thinking about you. And I really have picked that up from her to kind of do that as well. So I kind of am a little bit more mindful now when I have people that I care about or even people that I want to make sure stay in my life. I don't really wait for them to reach out. I just kind of do that same thing. And I really learned that from her. It was interesting. You mentioned being a stay at home mom. I've got two kids. I know your kids are Irish twins. We're, we're not quite Irish twins. Ours are 14 months apart, but close enough. So we both have went through an interesting few years. Um, I'm, I'm just coming out four and a half and five and a half years old, but I think I've gotten worse at staying connected with people in regard to what you're talking about, because I feel as though I'm either trying to be fully present for my kids and my wife, or when I'm with friends, like out to dinner, I'm trying to be fully present for them. And I think I used to be really good at just staying connected to a lot of people in my world, even if I wasn't seeing them. But I think the last five years or so, I've probably gotten worse at just staying connected because I'm like not craving just those small connections. I'm either wanting to go deep or be with my family or be with my clients. You mentioned being a stay-at-home mom. I'm curious for you, A, walk us through what went into that and B, what you learned when you were in that position as well. Well, I'll tell you. You know, I would have never thought, you know, me as a, as a young coach, you know, my goal was to be like the next Pat Summit, right? Like I wanted to be on top of the world and I wanted, and I was on that little bit of a fast track, thanks to people like Brenda and having good people to learn from. And when I had my first child, you know, he was, um, we tried like crazy to get pregnant, didn't get pregnant. And, you know, cause in coaching, you try to plan everything out, right? You want to plan, well, getting pregnant is not something clearly you can plan. So we missed that window of opportunity. And then we stopped, me and my husband stopped trying. Sure enough, that's when I got pregnant. So I ended up delivering in October. Well, October is not a great time if you're a basketball coach to deliver. You want to plan that for like May or August, right? So October I'm delivering, but I have my oldest son, Luke, who is maybe the greatest baby on the planet, right? Like when he would cry, I would celebrate because he like never cried. He was so laid back, so good. So I was like, oh, I got this. This is no problem. Like I was rocking the world. I was doing everything great. And I felt like I was really balancing being this mom of this newborn and getting back into work. I hardly missed any work with, with giving birth to him. And I was proud of myself and I kind of prided myself on that. And then he was literally four months old. I just found out that I'm pregnant again. And I know, Brian, you're like, how does that even happen? I don't even know how that happened, right? No, I mean, I do. I mean, when we were pregnant with our second, we were out to dinner. You know, we would we would take the stroller, walk into town, go to this place for happy hour, have a glass of wine. And our son also, like the greatest baby in the history of Earth, our oldest. And we're sitting there and I'm like, oh, I'll take a Cabernet or whatever. And I'm like, Robin, Robin's my wife. I'm like, you would like one too. Right. And she's like, nah. and, and my wife wasn't usually saying, nah, especially when you have a baby. And, uh, and I was like, no, and she's like, oh, I gotta think so. So I do understand because for us too, like the first one, you know, man 
plans and God laughs, right? Like you, right. you, you plan and then things, things happen in, in other, other ways. So no doubt. that's what, when I, my, my husband was like, not to be too, he was like, why are you being on a stick? What are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I just have that feeling. He was like, it's, there's no way. Sure enough. You know, the feeling was right. I was pregnant with my, you know, about like in that first trimester when you're a little bit like woozy and a little bit of a mess. Right. And I have this, you know, now he's like, I think he was five months old, actually. So I exaggerated, but he's like five months old. Again, the greatest baby. Brenda is the head coach and she's out recruiting. Our assistant coach recruiting, out recruiting. Our other assistant coach was sick. So it was just me for practice. And every day I would bring Luke to uh, a nanny that would watch him throughout the day. Well, she calls me right before practice and was like, hey, you know, Luke doesn't seem like he's, he seems sick, like something's wrong. And I was like, well, is there any way uh, we have practice? And she was a big Terp fan. So she was like, oh yeah, coach, you do what you need to do. He'll be fine. I got it. And so then I had practice, whatever, and practice was over. I, I grabbed myself because at the time my husband was working and he was on the road as well traveling. So he couldn't go grab him. When I get there, he was really struggling to breathe. Mm. So I take him straight from there to the doctors and he had RSV, which is pretty serious for a baby of that age. And the doctor was yelling, like me at this great pediatrician, but she was yelling at me like, why would you wait so long to bring him here? You got to do this sooner. You know, I'm in my first trimester with my next son. So I'm emotional. Luke is crying and he's like the calmest baby ever. And he's crying. I started to cry. I'm not that emotional like that. So now I'm crying. And it was like that point right there. It hit me. I don't know that I can do all of this, like have all this love for these, you know, these now two babies I'm about to have and juggle that and have all that love that I have for my job and the players that I coach. I just didn't know how I was going to make that work. And it was like, that was that moment when I thought, all right, I'm going to have to figure out how I can take this raising kids sabbatical and maybe get out of coaching for a little bit so I can give my love to my, to my family. Have you felt that before? Before that? No, I had never really felt like that. And so when you go through that and you talk to your husband, what was his reaction? He completely supported me, which in, you know, to live in Maryland on one income is pretty tough. It's a high cost of living. And you know, that was, I was worried like what he would think because, you know, we both made good money, but as an assistant coach, I was making good money. Like we were both kind of the breadwinners for our family to pay the mortgage, to do what we do. And uh, he was like, no, I can, he 100% supported me. He was into it. And uh, I was most nervous about bringing that information to Brenda. So I waited till the end of the season. And I, I'll never forget that feeling either when we had our meeting and she was kind of almost like wanting to prepare me for how she was going to help. Like we were going to have a manager that could help me on the road with the babies. And I'm like, Hey, I think I'm going to get out of coaching. And she couldn't get over it because she knew what my goals were getting in. Like, I want to be the next Pat Summit. I want to be the greatest at this. And here I am just, you know, getting out like almost cold Turkey, but it was just pulling me. So it was almost like, I just knew that's what I was meant to do at the time. And there is a, this force when you're a mom, I don't know, it's, it's maybe the greatest force ever. I can't really describe it, but I had to go do that. Uh, that was what my calling was at that time. Just like when I graduated from college, my calling was to coach. And I knew that's what I wanted to pour everything into. At that moment, I just wanted to pour everything into trying to 
be the best, you know, mother and, and wife I could be. And what I know was, that sounds sappy, but. No, no, it sounds amazing. What, what was your upbringing like with your mom? Uh, really good. You know, I had, uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom until I, I have, so I was like that. I like to think of myself as kind of like a pleasant surprise, but I was the accident of our family. So I have two older sisters and an older brother who are eight, nine, and 10 years older than me. So when I came around, uh, eventually my mom had to start working when I was eight because we had to put, you know, three siblings, try to help them get through college. And my, neither of my parents went to college. Uh, my dad was first generation uh, Italian American. My mom was grew up in kind of like the country and met my dad. They fall in love. And, you know, she was one of those really good at everything kind of moms. Like she could cook, she could sew. She made a lot of our clothes when we were little. Like she was just good at everything. And my dad worked in the steel mill. So he was working night shifts and double shifts. And it was definitely that just blue collar family growing up. And she started working when I was eight. And, uh, you know, that put it for me, like I almost had the house to myself when I was eight, nine. I was almost like an only child because my brother and sisters were off in college and, and you know, making their lives for themselves. So I had a great upbringing, really close with all my family. When you look back at having that space and that independence at eight, what were the upsides and what were the downsides of that experience? <laughs> well, the, the upside was before I was eight, we I had two sisters and we all shared one room. So it was three of us in a very small bedroom. And then my brother got his own small bedroom, which half the time, I, and that's probably why I'm such a tomboy. When I was that age, I was in with my brother as much as I was in with my sisters because there was really no room for me in any of the rooms. So I kind of just bounced around as, as the younger sibling and kind of was just looking for their attention and doing whatever to make them laugh, probably also why I'm sarcastic. And then when they all left, it was the upside was that I had my own room. We had one bathroom in our house. So the idea of like getting to take the longest shower that I needed or brush my teeth without people spitting on my hands on purpose, like that was basically like, uh, it was kind of amazing, but it was sad too. And we still had the letters, like my brother and sisters would write, we would write letters back and forth to each other and we saved them and oh, they're so funny, but you know, we were close, but not having them gave me that ability to really decide and watching, honestly, watching my parents have to work so hard to pay and my, my brother and sisters having to work so hard to pay for themselves, even to get through college. I kind of decided I, Oh, I'd say in eighth grade, I thought I'm going to work really hard and see if I can get a, a scholarship to play basketball. So no one has to like pay for me. I can just get it done. Was you know? being a tomboy accepted in your environment and your family with your friends or was there a pushback on that? Um, the, you know what? Seventh, eighth grade is really tough when you're a tomboy because that's when everything starts to change. So I remember in seventh and eighth grade, like before then, everybody called me Jojo. Right. And I took pride in like playing football recess and, and doing all those kind of things. Then all of a sudden it was like, wasn't cool. And it was tough, like seventh, eighth grade. And I think that's why middle school for girls, man, is it tough. But, you know, I grew up, it helped me grow up quite a bit. And uh, that's when I just kind of said, all right, this maybe isn't quite accepted. So I, I had to hone in my rough housingness and definitely become more of like, put together as a young woman, but still I loved, absolutely loved uh, being 
I guess the tomboy as far as aggressiveness and basketball, that was my out then. That's when I really got to be who you know I was, was on the basketball court. I could be rough and tough and play at a high level of intensity and not really be criticized for it. So I found that out in basketball. Is that sort of aggressiveness or intensity more like your mom or more like your dad? Probably more like my mom. My dad was also, I, I know I'm sure intense, but by the time I came around, he had like the kinder, gentler soul to him. In certain, Now he didn't have great patience, meaning, you know, if he told you something, you better do it like the way he wanted it done or, you know, somebody was going to be getting in trouble. But, you know, my mom was the one that could fly off the handle a little bit. And I liked that She was a, a, a strong woman that demanded like what she wanted. Like she was a working mom. And, you know, before I came around, I think my dad really didn't want her to work. But like she kind of said, no, I'm working. And he had to sort of deal with that. And so I got to see my parents change their roles where my dad cooked dinner every day, you know, and, and it was bad at first, really bad. <laughs> and the uh, food, the food was bad. <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> but, you know, I got to see them. And that was really great for me. I think that really did shape me as, as, as a young woman to say, I can do anything. And that was through my parents. Uh, and I'll never forget my dad, even when I got older, one of his big messages was, you know, life and being married is a life of comp compromise. And it's never always going to be the same. So one day you could have this role and your husband could have a different role, but you got to compromise. You got to compromise once you have children, because now it's not about you two anymore. It's about your children. So the life of compromise, I really learned uh, firsthand from watching them. And then they also gave me you know, some good life instruction through that. It's interesting when you think about advice. So I'm going to give two pieces to this. The best advice that I've ever received is to not give advice to people unless they ask for it. And this is beyond coaching, right? You're, you're a basketball coach. You have to give immediate feedback to your players, whether they want it or not. That's part of the contract that they sign up for in that environment. But beyond your job, if you're talking to a friend or a sibling or somebody else in that regard, if they're not paid to give you advice, like you should probably say, Hey, do you want me to share my thoughts on this? And if they say yes, great. If they say no, maybe you shouldn't. Okay. That's Literally, the best. Brian, I'm writing that down right now. I got to remember that. That's the best advice I've ever gotten. And I don't even remember who told me that, but ask for permission before you give advice, because there's nothing worse than getting advice from somebody and you don't want it. It is. It, and you're not, and the, the person, if they're not ready for it or they don't want it, they're not going to receive it. So it doesn't even matter. So that's number one. And then, so beyond that advice, the best advice I've ever gotten from somebody um, was actually a strength and conditioning coach. And she also owned a gym and she now works in the WNBA. She's amazing. And she told me this before I had kids. She said, put the marriage first and the kids second. Before I had kids, that was backwards to me. I was like, whoa, that's interesting because I saw these people living for their kids. And now that I have kids, I get it because it's so easy to put the kids first and the marriage second. And as a result, look, I'm no couples therapist. I don't know why some marriages fail and some marriages succeed. But I do think that a lot of couples fail because they put the kids first and the marriage second and then the, the love dies and then you separate that, that to me is kind right. of logical. And I've actually added on to that advice, which is put myself first, then my marriage, then my kids. Mm -hmm. And as a coach in a profession, 
where servant leadership has become this thing and transformational leader and, and be in service to everybody. I'm curious for you, like, what do you do to put yourself first, potentially, your marriage second, potentially, and your kids third, given the nature of, of the industry of coaching and, and how that often plays out? Yeah, that's, first of all, I think I'm just, I'm just scratching the surface of trying to be good at those things and uh, putting myself first. Right now, I'm trying to be really intentional about working out. So for me, like getting workouts in at least four times a week is kind of my goal and trying to eat healthy, a little bit more healthy and taking, and I started this and this is something I started a little while back because someone gave me this advice and it's been great. Take at least 15 minutes or so during your workday to just get better for yourself at your job. So a lot of times for me, it'll be going and just uh, reading a good article or, or looking at something I love X's and O's. So trying to find something that is X and O related, whether it's from the WNBA or from a different, like from a colleague. So I'll get on Synergy and that's what we do to watch film and I'll watch something, but it's just about me. It's not about, it's about increasing my knowledge for what I do. So I always try to do that. But now I took that a step further and try to do something really just for me, which is where the working out comes in. Uh, Cause I feel so much better after I work out. I have more patience. I'm just a better person all the way around when I like work myself a little bit to exhaustion. When it comes to my husband and my kids, that I, I, I agree with you when they're little and they demand so much, it really is hard to put your marriage first and your husband first because you know he can get along without you, but you have these two little kids that can't get along without you. So you end up kind of putting them first. But now it's a little bit easier for me. I'm not in your shoes anymore with a four and five-year-old. Mine are 13 and 14. So I intentionally make them hang out with me for a little bit each day. So I make that a point to get a little bit of one-on-one time with each of my boys just to find out how their day is. But as soon as I get home, I make sure me and my husband have a little bit of time together. And then at night, you know, before we go to bed, we make sure we have a little bit of time together. And that's how kind of I've tried to be a little bit intentional with it, but it's hard. I mean, it is really hard to find that time, especially because you sometimes with your spouse, especially like my husband's name's Joe, I know sometimes I take him for granted. Like, I think he's going to be there. He'll be fine. I got to make sure I put myself into this or that. And that's really not fair. So that's something that I need to continue to get better at without question. Yeah, it sounds like Joe is like my wife, just a strong human being. And I agree with you. I think sometimes we all take, going back to Brenda reaching out, like we take relationships for granted sometimes. Just because they're good doesn't mean they can't get better. And Absolutely. like there's a great, line which is you don't have to be sick to get better and you don't have to wait till it rains to build a roof like and my wife did something with me early when we had our kids she said brian like when was the last time you did something for yourself and now she's now she's happy to deal with that <laughs> i'm gonna go play golf you know, okay um but but no i think a lot of us struggle with that and i think it's very human and um in your case you mentioned loving x's and o's you mentioned pat summit I think of the challenge for sports coaches is that there's an endless stream of things that you could be doing. So whereas other professions, perhaps they can start here and there, you can always recruit more. 
You can always drop a new play. You can always learn about a new offense or new defense. And then you're talking about Pat Summit. And I think of somebody like Pat who I never met her. I don't know if you ever did, but is known for the attention to detail. And I had Candace Parker on the podcast and Candace talked about how she would autograph and everything that Pat Summit did was with this discipline and this diligence. And in some ways it sounds exhausting. Um, so as you have this drive in you and you love the game and there's clear passion for the game, how do you make sure that you're still healthy as you still aspire to do great things in your profession? I think like you just said, you, you try to get some type of balance to you, although it's not easy. And, you know, I'm, there are certain things I'm really disciplined with, but there's also certain things that I, I really, I, I want to be laid back with, and I want to have that, okay, go with the flow. So I, I do try to do that. And something that has been coming up a lot lately is that, you know, I, I did a couple of things with some coaching seminars and a couple of athletic directors said this line and I loved it. They said, Hey, you can get a different job, right? Or you can fail at your job or they can say fire you, or you can win a ton and move on. And then someone replaces you. Right. But as a, as a mother and as a wife in your, in your family, you, you're all your family's got like no one's replacing you. So I, a lot of times to, to be good at both. I remember both. I want to be here at Boston College and, and do great things. So I work really hard to make sure I can make that happen. But I also never want to do it so much or to some extent, extent to where then my family feels like that they're not ultra important to me as well. So finding that balance is something that we work hard on. And you know, I think some sometimes who kind of misses out on that is maybe you don't have as much time for friends or you don't, but again, I even try to make time for that. Like it's you, I just, yeah, I don't know. It's tough. You know, life is tough, right? When you want to be great at things and you, you have more than just one purpose to be great at, it, it can be really tough, but I think that you just, and you have to cut yourself a break. Is there anything you don't, is there anything you don't go and say, I, I want to be great at that? Is there anything you just say, you oh, I'm, I'm good being mediocre here. I'm good just being okay at that. A hundred percent. You know what my thing is? I don't care about what's everything that's going on in the world. Mm. I literally like, I don't get wrapped up into politics. You, I don't get wrapped up in the daily news and the daily happenings and what's like that stuff is, I don't make my bed every morning. I know you're supposed to No, I don't make my, bed. I'm not taking the time. I'm going to sleep in it the next night. It can stay messy that I don't need. Like that doesn't make me feel like I'm fulfilled to make my bed in the mornings that my bed stays messy. My room is fairly messy. Now, is my kitchen spotless? Absolutely. Are the bathrooms clean? Yes, but there are certain things I don't even waste my time with. And definitely politics, like the daily happenings, uh, I, what's going on around me, I try not to get, because then you'll get kind of down, right? Like when things were happening with COVID and throughout COVID, I really just try to go with the flow and not get too worried about it. Because if you start thinking like that and you're people like us that have so many other things going on, I don't know how you function. So there's things I just really do almost don't even act like they're, they're happening. I, I think you mentioned COVID. This notion that you're going to win COVID, it, like if you're not learning something new and you're not doing <laughs> XYZ, I'm like, bullshit. Like, 
what is that? This is a pandemic where anxiety levels are through the roof. Depression is happening. You know, abuse, domestic substance. I mean, this is this is real, and this thing is going to have a tail for a long time as far as the impact it's going to have on people. Like, I don't know. There have been times where I said, even tonight, like my wife is is doing something for herself tonight, and I said, all right, I'm going to take the kids out. I'm going to finish early tonight and I'm going to take the two kids. We're going to go to dinner. And like before the pandemic, I just said, Nope, I'm not done until six o'clock. And that's when I'm done. It's like, no, I've, I, I think the, the, I I've hated this pandemic. Let's make it really clear. I'm not one of those people that says, Oh, I love it. And I know for sports coaches and people in sports, there've been elements that have been really nice, more family time, less travel. But for me, I don't travel a bunch for work. I've set up my career so that, the things are pretty integrated pretty well that could always be better. And so for me, I'm like, no, I want to go out to dinner with friends. I want to go and travel and see the world. But back to that piece about agility and the importance, I worry so much that we are telling people that they have to meditate 20 minutes a day. They have to read 30 minutes a day. They have to write every single day. You have to exercise for an hour. And it's like, you have to sleep for eight hours. It's like, what day are you all talking about here? There are 24 hours. And I think people are so focused on maximizing that at times they forget to live. And, and so as I hear you talking about giving yourself some grace about making your bed or not having your room be completely clean. I remember a coach telling me once he was scolding a golfer that he worked with that her car wasn't clean. And I go, cares if her car isn't clean she has to focus on hitting a little white ball really really far it takes a lot of attention to do that trust me i try so uh i I agree with you and i think i think about that but from the pandemic standpoint and coaching during this time and um you know we're recording this in august 2021 um what has it been like for you as a leader and uh leading young people and being on college campuses i mean these are these are challenges and having seasons cut short and all this stuff. What, what's it been like for you going through this process? You know, for me personally, like I said, I, I guess, I think I've gotten good through my years, through my age of really, you know, when I was in college, that whole, there's this attitude quote, it's a really long quote in that, you know, at the end, it basically fires home life. And it's so overused, but it's so true. Life is your day every day. 10% 10% what happens to you, 90% how you react to it. So 90% of your day, your 24 hours in your day is you reacting to things and how you react is going to give you joy, right? Or it's going to make you miserable. So COVID was the 10%, although it did seem like COVID was a really big percentage compared to 10, right? But so what I tried to do during that time was make sure that people around me were going to be okay. Like I was really concerned with these college students because now I'm an adult. I, like you said, I'm a mom. Like it gave me more time with my kids. I could find a whole bunch of positives in that 90% that COVID uh, made happen. But what about my players that were, that were in college that were getting things taken away from them that, that they don't have that perception or that hindsight that we have as, as you know, 45, 46 year olds, they're just 18, 19 year olds going through it. So me, I just kind of constantly, how can I occupy them to see some type of positive? On top of that, we were going through such, you know, social unrest with, with the world. And just, how do you even get a kid to see the positive side of those things? But I guess that's kind of the, the role I tried to take on was with 
with my boys, uh, try to get them to see a positive light and everything and try to get that 90% of how they're reacting to COVID to be uh, what benefits them, like you said. And then same thing with my players, constantly trying to get them to see a better side of things. And a lot of times that would just be us getting on Zooms and just talking and, and listening to each other. And sometimes it would be, hey, let's all get out, get our masks on and get, take part in these protests and make that happen. And then sometimes it was like, yeah, this stinks. And almost just relating on that way, like letting them know, I understand it does stink, but life goes on and everything. If there's one thing, like, I don't know if you have both of your parents or if you've lost somebody close to you, but one thing I think you learn in, in loss of, of life of somebody close to you or in COVID and loss of our freedoms to do things, you really in that loss realize life still goes on. The year 2020 still happened. My kids still got a year older. Each of my, my athletes got a year older and a year more mature. So when life still goes on, you got to, you got to make sure you're moving with it and, and doing what you can to be a, be a great impact. I think it's interesting you talk about that 10%, what happens 90% how you respond. And I love thinking about that. I never thought about it this way, but could that be a 20% for some? Could that be a 5% for others? Could that be a 30% or a 40% 60? And I bring that up because I think you're right. In COVID, it might not have been a 90-10 split. What if it was a 25-75% split? Like, like COVID was impacting us 25%, but it's still 75% how we respond to it. And you talk about social unrest and we talk about privilege and different places that people come from. So even if someone has their entire, all the cards stacked against them and it's now at, uh, you know, that 90-10 is flipped. Like actually their environment, 90% of it is because of their environment and 10%. It's how they respond to it. It's still going back to like, well, what's going to be productive for me? Is it going to be productive to just constantly focus on the 90% or the 10% of what I can do? And in a lot of ways, that's what we talk about when we talk about mindset and the old adage, control what you can control or how do you respond? Right. And it's a, it's a slippery slope because there are systems and ecosystems and environments that we have to change so that the deck isn't stacked. Like that's not okay. And that's not right. So we need to focus on both. We need to focus on how do we change the deck and how do we help people inside a stacked deck still focus on the ways that they can quote unquote win. And I think you can hold both of those truths and we need to find ways to, to do both of those because I, I do think the pandemic, it might not have been a 90, 10, it might've been if someone lost a sibling or someone was immune compromised, or, I mean, for, or they lost their job or, I mean, right. it's just so loaded or they got COVID. I mean, it's like a, such a loaded deck, but for a lot of people, they live with loaded decks every day. And, and we Absolutely. also need to acknowledge that. So I'm off my soapbox. Um, you said something earlier that I wanted to just circle back on, which was family. And you said, you know, that athletic director said that family, you know, you can't be replaced, but you might get fired from a job uh, or maybe an assistant coach will leave or someone will transfer. Like there are moving parts, especially in the world that you're in, in the sports world. I've always struggled with the word family as it related to a sports team. And many sports teams will say we're a family. And I've always struggled with that phrase because of what you said, which is right. it's different. Because people come and go. So yeah, I'm seeing you. How do, how do you feel about that term family as it relates to 
your your program? So I think if if there's one one of the things I pride myself on as a head basketball coach is is what is making the environment our culture truly in it. You're right. Every coach says we're family. We're family. We really we embody that every team I've ever been a part of, whether it was as an assistant coach or now as a head coach. And I, I promise you, Brian, that's why my teams win is because I, I really focus on, we are a family. And yes, how, how, how though, because yeah, it's so transactional in a lot of ways, right? You, you're at Albany, then you leave Albany. Like how, this is the thing that I, and how do I leave if they were my family, right? Yeah. So here's, this is the thing that we say family now, all those players that I coached at Albany and those and the coaches I was with, if they want to continue the relationship, that's the thing. I'm still me. I'm still here. We in, in each other, they still have it. So it's not like people just disappear, right? But they do move on, or they might make the interchanging pieces of each other might change. But when you're in it, right? So right now, my team is in it. This is our team. This is our family what I try to get them to really realize is when we're in practice, because we have right now we have 14 players, right? Well, 14 players aren't going to play every night, right? Maybe, maybe eight, nine, because I'll, I'll rotate a big rotation because we play fast. You know, we might, but you know, you go to Connecticut that maybe only seven play there or you go to a different place, but you know, we're going to play a big rotation. So say nine, well, guess what? That's still like five people that aren't going to get on the court. But yeah, we're going to be a family. How do we do that? And then on top of that, in practice every day, I don't know which eight or nine I'm going to play. You got to compete and you got to get after each other and you got to go against each other and you got to prove that you're better than the other one. So you got to have that going on in practice. But then you're going to love each other and be a family. How does that work? We intentionally, every day, we, we try to do something to make them remember we compete hard against each other because we flip a switch. So we get into practice, we flip the switch. We are, we are no longer quote unquote, necessarily a family. We are now competitors. We are badass basketball players that, that are driven by our goals individually and collectively. That's what we're, we're on the court. Cause when we step onto the court, that's what we're doing. But as soon as practice is over, we have to flip that switch back off. And now, because they're not just basketball players, they're young, strong women that deserve to have that bond with each other as being best friends and hopefully a sisterhood. And I'm not just that badass coach that coaches them during practice. I'm also a mother and a mentor and someone that wants to be a part of their lives forever, hopefully. So we have to be able to turn that switch on and off. And when you, in the recruiting process, I try to find players that are mature enough to handle that switch. What do you, what do you, what do you, what do you do to make sure that you're compartmentalizing that? So what do you do to make sure that when you step on that floor, you know that you're in compete mode and you're in coach mode? And what do you do to turn that thing off when you step off that floor? I think that comes from my years of experience, because like when I was when I was younger, I wasn't good at it. When I was younger, I felt like I always had to have the, the switch on. So if I coach, would coach my, mode, so you were coach, in coach mode, mode, right? So if I would see my players out like somewhere else, I'd be like, Hey, how's it going? Like real serious, you know, like I wasn't going to cut up and be fun with them because I had to be coach mode. And as I've gotten older, I thought, you know, that's really not fair to me because that's not who I am all the time. That's who I am in my job. And so I've really become a lot more vulnerable and made 
made it important to myself so they can see me as a mom to my children. They can see me when I just cut up and, and, and I like to joke and when I, I'm, I'm the worst dancer on the planet, but I'll, you know, dance and whatever and have fun because I like doing that stuff. And I want them to see, because I want to see that side of them too. I want them to be able to feel comfortable and tell me maybe some trouble they got into that maybe they wouldn't tell their coach, but I'm not there. I'm, I'm still their coach, but I've got to be more of a mentor off the court for them. I've got to be more of a, a mother, mentor, older sister, that role for us to be a family. Because if I'm always just coach, there's no family. Which of those sides of you feels most alive? Honestly, I, both. You know, and it really is a switch. And I don't know, like when I'm on the court, I am super, like, I cannot wait for those two hours, you know, where today was like a three, three hour individuals. I can't wait to be in coach mode for that time and, and really like give them all my knowledge and make them become the best basketball players they can be for that amount of time I get with them. But then I love like Thursday, this Thursday, when they all come over to my house, I can't wait to get them there and like play cornhole with them and, and cut up and do some TikToks and like just enjoy them. So I, I like it both. I, I think I'm most alive. I'm most alive though when I'm, when I'm being in mentor uh, mom mode, when they allow me to be. And that's where like relationships work two ways. So they have to be able to take that criticism that I give them when the, when the light, when that, when that switch is flipped and I might be yelling at them and I might be in, getting on them. Can they then when we're in being a family mode off the floor, can then they be like, okay, now I still love you, coach. I'm not going to hold that against you. Now I want to talk to you and get to know you. Or are they still mad because maybe I hurt their egos a little bit in practice? And the more mature you get. And so sometimes with freshmen, it's tough because they can't really draw that. They don't even understand the line. But now my seniors, we have four seniors this year. They, they know me and I know them like the back of each other's hands. So when we're off the court, they know they can come mess with me. We make fun of each other. It's, it's great. On the court, I can yell a lot of them. I can push them to be great, and they get where I'm coming from. But that's where I hope every player that, like, comes to play for me, and that's something that we used to have, and now that's the dynamic that's changing, is it is a process. So it takes time. And so I hate the fact that, like, I was at Albany for just two years, and I was just starting to build that in a certain respect, and then I left. But, you know, I hope that when I left, those players still had those tools with each other. And then they're going to give what we learned together. The new coach is going to be able to continue that type of culture in, in the way that they want to, if that makes sense. Yeah, but it, is, it is a weird line. I, I'm with you on players leave, assistants leave, head coaches leave, stay, whatever. But the process is always beautiful as you're doing it. We're not even going to get into the transfer portal, which is a whole nother can of worms, but let's stay on this idea of relationships. And you said something, relationships are a two-way street. Is love also a two-way street or is that different? It's a little different. I think love from my perspective is unconditional. And sometimes for kids, it's, a, it's not quite that easy for them because they all didn't have the upbringing I had. They all don't have the background I have. So it's something that I hope I teach them to have that. I'm going to love, literally love each of my players before I even get to know them 100% because that's my job. And that's what I pride myself on. Like I, 
they know and I want them to know, like, I love them as people. I have their back. Are they going to love me like that? No, heck no. That that might take three or four years of them playing for me to, to really get there. But that's my hope is that at some point, maybe that's a two-way street as well. If I were to suss that out, it sounds like you think a relationship, if we're going to form a relationship, we both have to be all in for each other. Absolutely. Love, my job as the head coach to 18 to 22, 23-year-olds is to love you. Um, you Absolutely. come here, you make this commitment. I look your parents in the eye and say, I'm going to love them up and I'm going to love them. But for them to reciprocate the love, that is going to be something that they're going to have to discover how to do or the way in which they do it. Um, And and that might come, but the relationship you do need, like we need to have a relationship. Yeah, there has, and that, and that, you know, the baseline of that is always trust. So I work really hard to be, you know, for a coach, to garner trust, it's about being fair and, and making sure that you stick to what you say, you do what you say, uh, and you also treat everybody with the same amount of respect. Now, it doesn't mean you coach everybody the exact same way, but your level of respect and love, like that's why I said for each of my players, that unconditional love and respect I'll have for each of them. But it doesn't mean I always like them. You know, there are times when I have to, you know, get on them and tell them what they're doing is disappointing and making, you know, us unhappy. But even through that, I still love them just like you do your own children. And I think that that is uh, super important. And I've, I've gotten even better at that since being a mom and coaching, but I was honestly pretty good at that in my younger days because I knew when I was younger, that's the kind of coach I wanted to play for. Right. With somebody that unconditionally loved me, even when I was a jerk, Cause I was a jerk when I was a kid, you know, I had a hot temper, you know, and you still need love through that, but you need discipline. And sometimes you need to be set straight, but it, there always has to be that love. Was there, um, a co- the was, there was there a coach that modeled that you said, that's the type of coach I'd want to play for. Is there a coach that you played for along the way that you said, gosh, like looking back, they really just loved me. Even if, even if I was a pain in the ass. Um, you know, my coaches were all good, but I'd say my parents probably gave that to me the most, you know, and my, and even my brother and sisters, I was the youngest of so many that, you know, I kind of had that unconditional love from so many people that it, it really helped me be, I think this mentality that I have now. And I did have, I had, you know, a high school coach that, that gave me good love, but then I also had a college coach that gave me good love, but that pushed me. So yeah, I, I, I did. I had the, probably the best of both worlds with that. You mentioned trust and then respect that they're both cornerstones to love. And I agree with you. And there's a third one that I want to pull on a little bit and and see what's underneath for you, which is communication. And Mm -hmm. when you talked about Brenda, um, you you mentioned her communication and her willingness to stay connected. And so when I think about great relationships, they usually great partnerships, any relationship have trust, respect and communication. So I'd love to learn about how you communicate with, with your team. Uh, it could be even your staff, but also right. your players. What are the ways in which you intentionally communicate with them? And how do you go about doing that? I try to be like super transparent. So uh, I'm pretty much an open book. So, you know, I, I don't mind telling personal stories of like something that's happened to me, good or bad or funny or indifferent. Right. So I kind of give that. So then I can hear that, like that kind of communication. But when it comes to, communication through conflict I'm very immediate with it so I 
And I, I tell my players, this is actually a conversation we had just last week that nobody likes confrontation, right? I, I don't really know anybody that I don't like, nobody likes confrontation, but it's necessary when there's some type of conflict that you, that you need to resolve. You have to embrace con, uh, confrontation quickly, swiftly, and with all parties involved. So that's always my policy when it comes to my players. So say a player looks upset and they come in and, and they say, hey, uh, so-and-so on the team, I mean, stop right there. If we're going to talk about so-and-so on the team, let's bring them up here and let's, let's all talk together. So we do that very uh, intentionally and, and they know that of me. So if they're going to come in and talk about something, but I, what I've seen sometimes is like, for instance, uh, last year we had uh, a point guard and, and another player that maybe didn't think that they were, they thought that the point guard wasn't passing them the ball. And I knew that point guard was not doing that intentionally. So they had that, I could see that little riff on the court a little bit where, it seemed like they had a little bit of like spite. Like if they didn't get the ball, they would maybe throw up their hands and a little bit of like, oh man, missed me again kind of thing. Like almost like it was intentional, but it wasn't. The point guard was getting heated up. There. So I just brought them both in and I was like, what's going on? And I was like, and I just looked at the point. I said, are you intentionally not passing her? She was like, no, why, why would I ever do that? And it was like, as soon as they got that out in the open, everything was better. So same thing with my staff. If I feel like there's, I always say there's never going to be, we're never going to walk on eggshells in my program, whether it's in the office, in the locker room, we're going to be so transparent with each other that it's going to be fun and we're going to enjoy each other and we're going to, we're going to get to know each other. So with my staff, same thing, when we have new people, we kind of sit them down. What do you like? We, we talk to our team about how they like to be talked to, to make sure that we don't rub each other the wrong way. But then even with that, you have somebody say, well, I don't like when you come at me. And then you'll have another player say, well, listen, when I get frustrated, I don't even realize, but I'm going to come at you. And then they, they come to like a little bit of a compromise where they get to know each other and get to understand each other. And as soon as everybody realizes, because it's almost human nature, especially when you're 18 to 22, but I think in general, to think one, you're always getting the short end of the stick or two, that people have something out against you and, and once you get over that neither of those two things are, are the case now you can start to build and so we we do a lot of uh intentional confrontation so we, we we talk to each other and we have that open open line of communication and it's been it's worked really good i haven't had any scuffles like my team really does you ask my players they're going to say their on-court off-court chemistry is really good on court. They always could get better. That's basketball. That's X and O's, but off court, they get along really well. And there's a lot to unpack there, but the, a couple of things to just point out. One, I never liked the phrase constructive criticism because I really don't think people want to be criticized. Like none <laughs> of us wake up in the morning saying, I can't wait to get criticized today. So I always, when I worked with athletes, always said, instead of thinking of it as constructive criticism, what if you just thought about it as feedback? And the lens with which you look at that feedback can dictate whether it's helpful, not helpful, et cetera, et cetera. And, and by the way, anything that I talk about with my clients, I'm trying to do for myself as well. So Me too. I know I don't like constructive criticism. And when I look at it as criticism, I usually am not open to it. But if I look at things with the lens of feedback, then I can be like, that's actually some garbage feedback. That's not that helpful. Or I can be open to saying that's useful. So I, I, constructive criticism is a phrase that I never really liked. 
you mentioned confrontation and I love the word confrontation. I agree with you. I think so many people are afraid to confront and it gets in the way because it leads to passive aggressiveness. It leads Mm -hmm. to cattiness. It leads to stabbing people in the back and it's just, doesn't end up working. I think for some reason, confrontation has gotten like a bad rap, but to me, the best teams are willing to confront each other. And then the best idea in the room wins regardless of title or position, or if they're a senior or they're a freshman, if we're willing to hold the space for that. So I think that's a big piece. And the last thing I'll say just to tie a bow around it is if we think about respect, trust, and communication, they're not in silos. So as I was listening to you talk, it was, yeah, if we respect each other, then we're going to trust each other and we're going to communicate. If we trust each other, then we're going to respect each other and we're going to communicate. If we communicate with each other, then we're going to trust each other and respect each other. Amen. And so they really are woven together. But if one of those legs is not there to support, if we're lacking trust or we're lacking respect or we're lacking communication, then it's really hard to have a great relationship, whether that's your spouse or a friend or a teammate or a coach or a coworker. And so I just think like that for me has gotten really clear. And I find when my relationships aren't where they need to be, it's usually because our communication isn't where it needs to be. Our trust isn't where it needs to be or our respect has, has fallen because of potentially one of those other pillars. So I was was hearing that as you were describing it. Yeah. I love that. And then I think another good point with your communication is sometimes you got to know yourself and if you're a little bit of a hothead, like I tend to be, Sometimes just giving it that pause of however long you need to be a little bit more level-headed because you really never can take back your words. You know, once it comes out of your mouth and you say it, uh, even when you're respected, there's not a lot of forgiveness for it. So you got to make sure like, and I've learned, like you had talked about after a loss, you know, when, when we, when we have a game and we lose, like that's something in my years, I've gotten so much better at. What do you do? Well, you know, back in my younger days, uh, after a loss, it was, it, it wanted hurt so bad. And I took that hurt, like I took that pain out on my team and just yelling at every little thing and forgetting the fact that they feel just as bad or they should feel just as bad as I do. So as I've gotten older and really, you know, now that I have kids and I, and it's a reminder, like when my boys come home after a loss and they're torn up about it and, you know, if you can get through it. So I always say a, a basketball loss. So say we, we play a hard fought game or maybe we don't play hard. Maybe we, we, we just kind of shit it up in that game. Right. We don't play well and we lose when we get done with that. And we come in the locker room, you know, I, I try to channel that. Are we losers or are we learners? Can we, can we grow from this loss? Now, five years ago, I would have never thought like that. Five years ago, all I could see was red after that loss. And I just wanted to tell every single person how terrible they were, and, you know, and that's all, and, and, and what they did wrong. But now I'm like, okay, they can. So I always say that loss, they have to mourn it, right? Just like you do a loss of, of anything in life, you mourn it. But you can only mourn it till the next morning because basketball happens fast. Life happens fast, right? Life keeps moving. So we will mourn it, but they better be mourning it. And how you mourn a loss is each of my, I ask each of my players to internally think about the game and what they could have done better as an individual, not pointing the fingers, not what their teammate could, just what them as individuals. If you didn't play in the game and you sat on the bench, what could you have done better as a bench player? 
everybody takes their part and we grow and we learn from the loss and we get better, but that's how we mourn. And so after the game I do, and if it's a lack of effort, now don't get me wrong, I'll still yell and get, get on after the game, but it's still with more of the feedback of we got to learn from this because we can never allow this to happen again. And then the next day we'll break down the film and, and, and we'll, we'll be able to do it more with a level head and more with an open mind of we've got to learn and grow so we don't make the same mistakes twice. So that's the way now we approach losses. And I think that's something I've gotten a little bit better at in my, in my age. It's amazing. You said you would see red. And for me, it's interesting to meet people that have met me now versus that have known me my whole life. And like, I was an, a small chip on my shoulder. Basketball is my sport of choice, wrong sport to pick, but that we don't need to, we <laughs> yeah, don't need to talk about that. <laughs> you, you at least played at, you know, at a high level and had success. Me, no, 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 no. It was, it wasn't happening, but you know, I was stubborn and I was, um, you know, I, they told me I was too small. I'm like, okay, well, let's roll out the ball and let's see what happens. And, but I think as I've gotten older, like there, that chip on the shoulder when it's on the wrong shoulder has gotten in the way um, for my ability to learn or my ability to see possibilities. And, and so today, like a lot of my clients will say like, oh, I have, I have anger. Like my anger, I could tell you, I could locate it. It shoots up my spine. When I get that way, I could take on the world. And there's a benefit to it. There are things that that can help me with, but often at this point in my life, it doesn't serve me that, that well. Um, and so one of the things I did was I married someone who's very even keel and so, right. So smart partnership choice by the two of us, but I can, I can get after it and she'll stay even. I'm curious for you as a staff, because it's a little different than just a partner, um, do you look for people that are able to be more even, or do you surround yourself with people that are maybe more similar to how you approach the intensity of a game or, or uh, of coaching? Like, how do you find that sauce, so to speak, when you're thinking about who to put on the staff? Right. And I, I that's probably something I'm still getting, you know, growing in, right. Because I haven't been a head coach that long to put that many staffs together to know. But what I try to do the same way we diversify our team with positions. I, I think about that same idea when I, when I make my staff is that I want to diversify personalities because we all have to be mentors for these young athletes. So it, it takes each of us to bring a different kind of diversity. So I'll have somebody that's pretty intense and more defensive minded because I know how offensive minded I am. I'll have somebody that, was a professional player and played at the highest level because, you know, I played division two basketball, so I don't know exactly what these players are going through. So I need to have somebody on my staff that really gets that. And then I have to have the person that is like more of your hype man, somebody that, you know, isn't going to get down like I do when things like almost is the opposite to my pessimism helps me see like, Hey, this is the bright. There's always a bright side. So I try to find that one coach that's very optimistic and, and more so like a cheery, you know, brings to the table maybe some of the things that I don't. So everybody kind of compliments a- around me. And that's that's what I've tried to do. And I think it's worked pretty well. But first and foremost, they've got to be like good people that, and this is the key, I think, to people that are in any type of 
mentorship, whether it's teachers or whatever, they have to be able to put the success of the people that they're working with above their own. So each of my coaches, including myself, we work so hard because we want to see our, each of our players succeed. It's not about us succeeding. Now, I don't care what I look like when I'm coaching. I don't care who looks like they're, they're doing the best job. It's all about can we get our players to be great and really feel the joy and the happiness of winning and winning as a team. And sometimes, you know, coaches, a lot of times we have a lot of coaches have big egos and they miss that that's what it's all about. They forget. They start to think it's more about how they're perceived and what they look like. And I try to be really never let myself get like that or my ego, but I, I make sure that I have my staff that I don't allow them to get like that either, that it's always about how we're developing and, and really promoting our players to be great. As you're focused on your staff and you're focused on the players and helping them be great, who's focused on you and helping you make sure that you're having an outlet um, and that you're developing and that you're growing? Like who, who are the people that help you or coach you or, or help you be the best version of you? You know, my husband is a huge outlet, right? So he's that even kill that you talk about when, you know, he's that person I bring my stuff to, especially when I have to iron things out. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to still have my mom. I, I FaceTime and talk to my mom every day, right? So those are my two family backbone. The ones when I do say things, they are the ones that will forgive my comments, right? They're very forgiving because they, they've known me the longest they know me. And then, you know, I try to pick people like, uh, I have a few coaching mentors that I'll go to, but even then, sometimes that for me, I know they're so busy. I think, well, I'm so lucky that I have a husband and, and even a mom that I can go to and, and get that little bit of help from. But that's, those are my main people. And then I have a really good, everywhere I've been, I have like a group, a small group of friends. And I kind of pick friends that aren't basketball people that don't know anything about basketball that are more like moms. And sometimes when I need to unwind, I love just to get them and be like, hey, you guys want to come over? Maybe we have a glass of wine, play some cards or throw some cornhole where I can just almost veg out and not think about maybe the, the tough part or the stressful part of what we do. And that really helps. It's interesting you bring up being a mom. I want to go back to th these few years on sabbatical. Did you feel like your identity was the same? Did you feel like you were missing a part of yourself as you were, look, Anyone who has been around somebody who is a full-time mom, like <laughs> God bless that job. Like we, we had, we had a great nanny for like four years, pandemic, everything's all out of whack, but this nanny would come into our kids' lives. My wife works. I work. This nanny would come into our lives and like we called her, her by her name Poppins because she was just so good with our kids right. and, and she didn't even work, work with us anymore, but she came over the other day just to see our kids. Like God bless these people that can pour themselves into children in, in that way. Um, and so as you were, as you were doing that and on this sabbatical is not the right word. It, it, that's, that's like you are, as you were a full-time mom, right? What, what, what were you missing in your identity, if if anything, or did you feel full or what was that experience like? Because a lot of people, I know a lot of moms who that's it. I was just with 
two moms two weekends ago who both had careers and they stopped because their husbands fortunately can support them. And I said to both of them, I said, what's it like? Like, how's that going? Like, what do you think? And getting their perspective, because I'm just kind of a curious guy. And um, I was, I was interested, but for you to have that and then to go back into it, it, like it's such a unique experience. So I'm curious, what was, what were those years like from an identity standpoint? Well, my, mine was a little bit even crazier because when I left Maryland, I really, I was like a, you know, I was pretty focused. I had this, you know, young, whatever, nine month old, I was about to deliver my next. So I was really in the thick of what I was doing with babies. And we knew we wanted to get close to family. So when a little bit after my boys were, uh, both were born, we ended up getting to move back to Morgantown, West Virginia, which is where me and my husband met. He was able to get a good job there. They, and the cost of living there is a little bit less so I could be a state. And when I got out of it, you know, when I talked to Brenda, I really thought I'm going to get out of it, but I will get back in. This was, this was my, in my mind. I thought I will get back in, but I don't know what level, maybe I'll become a D2 head coach, maybe, but I do want to get back in. But right now this is what my calling was. So I go over to, we moved to Morgantown and both my boys started sleeping through the night finally. And I felt like I was superwoman. Like, you know, you go two straight years without any sleep. You think like you're like a, a, a machine when all of a sudden you're getting to sleep. So Mike Carey at West Virginia had a job opening and, you know, he called me cause I was living there already. And I was like, Oh yeah, for sure. I'm ready. And because I was dying without getting to coach, like it ate me up all the time. Like, cause I, I felt like what you just said, my kids were little, I didn't have a mom friend group. I was just with them every day. I didn't have an identity. I missed coaching. I missed the players. I missed the basketball. So when he had that opening and I was able to go back and work, I was in, I'll never forget the first time driving my minivan uh, into work without the kids in the back blaring the music because I didn't have to listen for them. And it was like this liberating, oh, I'm free. And that feeling lasted for like uh, a week. And that was it. Because then I was hiring a nanny who was there all day with my kids who weren't, they weren't even one and two yet. And I was, and I was working all the time because that's what you do when you're an assistant coach. Like you put your whole life into it. Right. And I was missing, my kids were at the door crying when I was leaving They Sometimes by the time I would get home, they were already in bed. I was missing their, and I just started to stress. And I was like, just not feeling great about my decisions. And that was what, it was almost like I got to sow my oats that I worked for about nine months and a lot of people don't realize I put that nine months back in right there. But that's when I, when I left then and I told him right after the season was over, Hey, I'm going to leave. And again, you talk about almost burning a bridge. Thankfully I worked for good people who I didn't burn bridges with, but you know, who would have ever hired me? So when I got out of coaching that second time, after only working nine months, after already leaving Maryland, I thought I would never get to coach again. So I was out for good because they weren't because they wouldn't think you were committed. Is that the thing? Exactly. Like who does that to their career? Right. Who leaves winning a national championship to go be a stay at home mom and then leaves being a stay at home mom to work for nine months and then quits that. What did you what did you miss most about basketball when you were out of it? Everything. I, I think, like you said, the identity of who I am, the mentorship of being a coach, the the X's and O's, the pushing people, the having that having a job of, of some like everything, I missed everything about it. You know, I missed the basketball, 
the coaching, the friendships, the, the work relationships, my coworkers, I missed everything that there was to miss. I missed it when I was out. Did I love being a mom to my two babies? A hundred percent, but it was like pulling at me that I missed it, but it never pulled at me again. I'm not even lying. When I sowed those oats for that nine months and then I decided I was just going to be with the boys, I never even thought about for, for that next three years till they got to be in kindergarten and first grade, I literally never thought about coaching. I liked watching it. And sometimes I'd watch, you know, I, of course, always watch basketball. So I'd watch and I'd be like, oh, that's great. But it wasn't like that heartache the first time when I quit. And every time I'd watch, I'd literally almost well up because I wanted to be coaching. What, why, what, what changed, what changed in those nine months? Like you, you, what, well, yeah, what happened? It, it was like knowing maybe it's the controllingness in me, but knowing that the nanny that we had knew my children and was spending more time with my boys than I was just killed me knowing that I, when I got home and this is the truth, when I would get home and we'd have that couple hours, if they were, you know, still awake and not in bed yet, I would want all that time with them. And I didn't want to give any of it to my husband. Like I didn't even have time for him. Like it, it was just a terrible feeling. Like I, and, and I just wasn't good at what I felt like that was my calling was to be a mom and a wife at that time. And I was, I, I couldn't do both. And that's, I really came to that realization that me personally, I know there's great there are women out there that do both and they're spectacular at it. I, my like brain and mentality was not good at it. So I was like, Hey, I'm just, and when I decided to just be with them, I was all in as just a mom. I didn't really miss, miss the basketball. I didn't miss coaching. I just did my thing with them and, and really took pride in like, they both read before they started kindergarten. They both could read. They both like had the fundamentals of dribbling, you know, like all the little things that you want to do, like as a mom that you want to instill in your kids, they were good kids. They, we did all those like little library story times and all the fun, took them to the science museum. And I got to do all that. And I think, and then I made that core group of friends that were stay-at-home moms as well. And I was literally the only one I felt like that didn't hate my job because they all hated being a stay-at-home mom. And I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like I loved every minute of it. But then when they started school, and I was home by myself. That was terrible. So my, my one son went to full day pre-K and it was full day kindergarten. So he was home. Like I only had one son on Fridays. Otherwise it was eight hours a day of me looking at myself in the mirror. Like my house couldn't get any cleaner. There wasn't anything like to do. I was bored as I could be. And so I was like, I told my husband, I was like, what do you think? You think I, I should get back into it? And he, he, again, being an awesome human being, he was like, Hey, I married a basketball coach. <laughs> he was like, I know that's what I married. And so then I got back into it. That's awesome. Look, I, I, there's a lot to chat about. I feel like we could keep going, but I'd love to just cl- start winding down here about what you're building at Boston college and what it's been like. Uh, you've had some success, you've had some ups, you've had some downs. Um, and, and you're, and you're building this thing. And, and you're also in a conference that has a lot of ups as it, as it relates to programs. And um, so I'm just curious for you, like, what's your vision for this program going forward? What, what, what do you hope to do? Uh, you mentioned having four seniors this year and uh, you're at practice before we, we started 
to to have our conversation today to talk about Boston College and and what it's been like being there and where where you're, right. you hope to go with this thing. You know, my my vision is is to make this program a a nationally known program. That's my goal. When you you know someone mentions Boston College, I want in the second breath to say, man, they have a great women's basketball program. That's my goal. So when I took the job here. I hired people that believed it with me because that's the first thing when you're trying to build something is everybody that you're surrounded by has to believe with you, right? Belief is huge. Instills confidence. Confidence is huge. So I want to make this one of the top programs in the country. And now we finally have uh, the tools in place where we're going to build a new practice facility. And if there is anything that kind of has been a little bit of our Achilles heel here is that maybe our facilities weren't up to what the ACC, what my, my competitors have. But now that's changing because when you look at Boston College, to be honest, we're right outside of Boston. I know I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's like the greatest city in the country. We're right outside of Boston. We have, we're in Chestnut Hill, unbelievable community. We have this 9,000, uh, undergrad private university that is one of the most expensive universities with this high top level education. You have everything here at Boston College. Why choose anywhere else if we're if we're saying, hey, we're going to give you a full scholarship. You get high academics, you get an opportunity to not just play, but win in the ACC. And that's where we're getting to, right? We got to win. You can win. And on top of all that, this is my my vow and what I get all my coaches to agree with. We're going to do it with while we have fun. We're gonna celebrate every little part of it. And even when we get really good, we're still not gonna put the pressure on ourselves. We're gonna do it without that exterior pressure of having to. It's never, my players are never gonna be here and feel like it's their job to play basketball. It's always gonna be their love and their passion. So that's kind of the groundwork of what we're working with. And I hope uh, in another couple of years, you have me back on the podcast. You're like, hey, you did it look at how great you guys are, you know, and then we're talking about the next step of, of how we're working on winning a national championship. Well, even better, my four and a half year old girl, maybe in like 12 <laughs> years, you can recruit her, my I'm, eyes on her. I, I'm telling you though, my, my, my wife said to me this morning that she was going to have her sign up for soccer again. And she said, do you want to do soccer again? She's like, no. So I don't know. She, she is, she's got art. She's got artistic stuff in her that are amazing qualities. Yes. And, you know, we're just going to try to nurture her nature, but her dad likes ball and uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens. I, I have a feeling if her dad likes ball, she's going to go in completely different direction. If she's anything like her dad, to be honest. So it's all good. <laughs> um, but this has been a blast and it's, it's been great to connect with you and get to know you. Uh, when you all come through the DC area, I would love to meet in person. And if I'm ever up in Boston, would love to connect with you as well. Yes, and um, excited to see where you all take this thing and continue to continue to build it your way and the way that gives you fulfillment and satisfaction. And uh, this has been a blast. So thanks for coming on the podcast. If people want to learn more about you, about Boston College basketball or anything else that you want to promote or give a megaphone to, um, where can they find you? Where can they find Boston College or, or anything else that you're passionate about? Right. Like they can follow uh, me on social media. I think my uh, I'm on Twitter. I don't have the gram yet. So Facebook, Twitter, um, at uh, Coach McNamee on, on, on Twitter. And then our Boston College, you can follow us on everything except TikTok, which we're going to be starting. That's going to be highly entertaining. 
but uh, we're just at Boston College Women's Basketball on, on just about everything. So please follow us. Uh, we really, and if I can promote that, that's going to help us. We don't have a ton of followers on social media because we're we're such an academic, you know, institutionalist. Come follow Women's Basketball on all of our social media sites because we're pretty funny and we put out some great content. We'd love to have people follow us. I love it. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. I'm on Instagram too. We have intentional underscore performers there. You know, Instagram's Instagram, but TikTok is something that I do not envision us going to, but coach, maybe you'll coach me up on TikTok or maybe my daughter will in the next couple of years. I'm sure she will, or whatever the next thing is. Uh, but this has been a blast. Thank you so much for the time and I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks, Brian. And I'm going to make sure I, I send Brenda Freeze a big thank you for getting us connected. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. My vision is is to make this program a, a nationally known program. That's my goal. When you you know someone mentions Boston College, I want in a second breath to say, man, they have a great women's basketball program. That's my goal. So when I took the job here, I hired people that believed it with me because that's the first thing when you're trying to build something is everybody that you're surrounded by has to believe with you, right? Belief is huge. Instills confidence. Confidence is huge. So I want to make this one of the top programs in the country. 